It's Tuesday, June 15th, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis and interviews based on my newsletter, News Items. Today, we're running part one of my interview with Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. The state's junior senator graduated from Harvard and Harvard Law School. He was deployed to both Iraq and Afghanistan as a soldier in the U.S. Army. First elected to the Senate in 2014, he was re-elected in 2020 by a two-to-one margin. In the conversation I had with him this week, we discussed the early days of the pandemic, the federal government's lethargic response to it, and the possibility that the coronavirus had leaked from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. You can tune in again on Friday for part two of the interview, where we talk about the events of January 6th and the sleeper issue of the 2022 midterm elections. But for now, here's part one of my interview with Senator Tom Cotton. Senator Cotton, welcome to the News Items podcast. We're very pleased to have you here today. Thank you, John. It's good to be on with you. I wanted to start, obviously, with the events in Wuhan that news started to trickle out about the outbreak of what has become known as COVID-19. And you were among the first, if not the first, to raise the alarm about it. Tell us about that. Well, John, I remember in early 2020, starting to see some very small reports in mainstream media about some kind of unknown viral pneumonia in central China. I read those reports. I didn't think much of them. But around the time that we were sworn in in the Senate for the impeachment trial of President Trump, I guess I have to say the first impeachment trial of President Trump now, I noticed that uh, your morning newsletter, News Items, was linking more and more to medical journals, Asian news sources, and other reports. And I began reading those. And that's what really sounded the alarm to me in that uh, probably second week third week of January, while the rest of Washington fixated on the impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate. Uh, So I guess you could say you should always trust content from the news items newsletter. Um, And then I spent much of that impeachment trial either studying those medical journals and media reports or going back and reading other histories of pandemics and policy responses what went wrong with, say, SARS and MERS and what we might learn from it. And I spent much of the time either on the floor of the impeachment trial or stepping off the floor, making calls to the president and other administration officials, urging early, quick action. Also trying to alert my colleagues to it. But I think it's fair to say my colleagues thought that I was a bit alarmist. I wish in retrospect I had been, as opposed to being right about it. And when you say you talk to people in the administration, I assume one of those people was Matt Pottinger, who's the deputy national security advisor and a former reporter for Reuters in China. Did he share your alarm? Or who were the others who shared your concern about what was going on? I spoke with Matt Pottinger repeatedly. Matt was probably uniquely positioned to sound the alarm along with me. As you say, he had worked for the Wall Street Journal in China. He's fluent in Mandarin. His wife is uh, a scientist and a doctor in this very field. And suffice to say, Matt and I share the same skeptical view of the Chinese Communist Party's abilities and intentions. We also spoke with Matt's boss on several occasions, 
Robert O'Brien, but I, I spoke with almost anyone who would listen as well. President Trump and Vice President Pence, Secretary Pompeo, Secretary Azar, urging them all to take swift action. Because one thing I took away from studying past pandemics and policy responses to them is it's much better to say in retrospect that you acted too early and perhaps overreacted than to look back and wish you had taken action sooner rather than later, because that is the history of most pandemic responses across human history, which is they fail to heed the old Ben Franklin maxim, which is that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. <laughs> exactly. The, uh, I mean, I understand that you can't talk about U.S. intelligence sources and stuff, but was the concern about Wuhan more widely shared than just the uh, office of uh, the National Security Council for the president? Were there others that you were talking to across the government? No, John, not that I saw or I've seen since then. I have to say most of what I knew about the virus at the time uh, and most of what I still know about it to this day comes from reading news reports in the early days, scientific and medical reports talking to folks who were involved in it or involved in past outbreaks uh, like SARS. And for that matter, just applying basic common sense. You know, I, I'm not a scientist or a doctor, but neither are most Americans. I think most Americans can look at what was happening and follow the inherent logic of events using some common sense. So for instance, in the early days before China acknowledged there was a serious problem in Wuhan, and while they leaned on the WHO not to declare a pandemic, and while both China and the WHO denied that there was any human-to-human -human transmission, China was also welding shut the apartment doors of high-rise apartment buildings and locking down a population larger than our entire West Coast. Obviously, those actions did not match China's words and told me that something was up. A lot of concern, I guess, was that it wasn't you know, bats to animal to human, but that it was either an accident in the virology lab or some kind of release of virology lab experiments. When did you first begin to think that it might be a lab leak as opposed to what we come to know as the SARS causation? From the very earliest days, John, there was never a time when I was thinking seriously and studying carefully this new coronavirus in which I did not think those Wuhan labs were the most likely sources. Again, to me, it was just a matter of common sense. This virus did not originate in some remote mountain village next to a cave full of bats. It originated in a city larger than New York, right down the street from the labs where China researches coronaviruses. I mean, the woman in charge of those research projects is literally nicknamed the Bat Lady. Right. <laughs> now, uh, there was never any direct evidence, no smoking gun, as you might say, pointing towards those labs. There is still not, to my knowledge, most likely because it's all been destroyed by the Chinese Communist Party and their apparatchiks in Wuhan. But all of the circumstantial evidence, both at the time and today, points to those labs. And I mean all of it, John. Not a single bit of evidence points to the so-called natural origin or species skipping hypothesis. As far as we know, the market didn't even sell bats. And those bats certainly are not indigenous to Wuhan, again, a city that is much larger than New York. We know that they researched these viruses at the uh, Wuhan labs. 
Uh, we know that American diplomats traveled there in 2018 and expressed grave concerns about the safety practices at those labs. We know that China has a history of lab leaks to include a lab leak related to SARS. And what we've learned since then has only confirmed what we knew at the time. You know, there have been reports that staff at those labs fell victim to corona-like symptoms in the fall of 2019. It's since become clear that the researchers and scientists were not handling the coronavirus research at the labs at the highest levels of safety, so-called level four. You know, imagine spacesuits with oxygen tubes going up to the ceiling, but rather at what resembles level two level safety practices. Think about your dentist wearing latex gloves and a face shield and a white lab coat. Uh, and again, China continues to cover all of this up, to refuse to allow anyone access to those labs through a searching and thorough investigation. All the while, China has never discovered the so-called host species, the species from which this virus might have leapt to humans. That was not the case with SARS. It only took four months. Nor was it the case with MERS. It only took nine months. So all of these things together suggest that the labs are by far the most likely origin for this virus. One thing I didn't understand during those first four months, and you were sort of directly attacked, was the, you know, there were various possibilities for how the virus got out. But one of them, I mean, clearly was a lab leak. And yet anyone who articulated a lab leak theory was derided and disparaged as a conspiracy theorist and a nut and so on and so forth. You were one of those people so derided. How did that impact you, if at all? Did it make you more certain that you were right, or did it cause you to think maybe I'm wrong? Or uh, Yeah, you, you only take fire when you're near the target, John. <laughs> and uh, look, a lot of these reporters in American mainstream media had no background whatsoever. They were 20-something kids who had been on a politics beat a month earlier. So they were just repeating nonsense that they heard from politicized actors. I think there's two main reasons why the lab leak theory was dismissed from the very beginning. The first is a purely political reason. I was the first person to identify it as the likely source of the virus. And suffice to say, the legacy media, the blue media, whatever you might call it, don't agree with my politics. And therefore, they often jump to deride such claims coming from me. And then, of course, President Trump quickly picked it up as well. And uh, the media, like the Democratic Party, viewed this coronavirus as their opportunity to defeat the president in re-election. So they dismissed it as well, the same way they dismissed almost any claims he made about the virus, many of which have subsequently been vindicated, such as the lab leak theory. The second reason, though, has to do more with, I'd say, professional and financial CYA There is a large, powerful, wealthy community of scientists and researchers and public health bureaucrats and reporters in this country and around the world who are deeply invested in keeping the flow of money coming from governments, especially the United States government and nonprofit organizations and foundations into their labs. They all work together to ensure that each other's projects gets funded. You know, if you're a grantee this time, you may be a peer reviewer next time. They all work with the media that covers them to ensure favorable coverage. And those reporters need access 
to these scientists and researchers and public health bureaucrats and the threat that this could have come from a lab to their gravy train was severe. So that's why you have people like Tony Fauci dismissing it from the very beginning. That's why you have reporters who had relied on Tony Fauci's agency for stories for 30 years dismissing it from the beginning. We now know that it's not just trying to protect his own relationships with Chinese counterparts, but his own agency could be exposed to something of a scandal, if not a grave scandal. I mean, they pretty clearly funded indirectly through an American nonprofit this uh, lab in Wuhan to the tune of hundreds of thousands of taxpayer dollars to conduct what any reasonable objective scientist would say was gain-of-function research, making these viruses more dangerous in direct contravention to President Obama's directive not to fund such research. I think that's one reason why Tony Fauci has been so evasive over the last month or so until finally admitting these facts in front of congressional committees. But I think that's just an example of how widespread and influential and self-protective this network of scientists and researchers and grant makers and science writers has been. A lot of this was uh, covered very thoroughly and persuasively, I think, in Nick Wade's long essay uh, a few weeks ago that helped kind of turn the corner on the media coverage of the lab leak theory. I had just finished the uh, book by Michael Lewis called Premonition, and the tale he tells of the bureaucratic resistance to basically all available information, you know, that would be characterized at the time as alarmist, but basically the CDC and others pushed back without apparent reason on people who were raising the alarm, not just at the national level, but at the local level. Was that your experience as well? Was the CDC a, a bureaucratic mess? The CDC was a bureaucratic mess and politically correct and basically incompetent. I was beside myself last February as the impeachment trial came to an end, as President Trump delivered his State of the Union and Congress finally, about a month too late, started focusing on this pandemic. The CDC totally botched the testing regime, insisting that labs and state health departments only use CDC test kits, test kits that were themselves contaminated and therefore ineffective. So we lost several weeks, more than a month, on getting testing kits out to the states so we could have effectively identified the spread of this virus early. Now, look, in in the end, there was probably nothing we could do to fully stop the spread of a highly contagious novel coronavirus, but we certainly could have slowed it down earlier and we could have gotten ahead of it more effectively if it hadn't been for the incompetence and the intransigence of the CDC. They've got a lot to answer for in their mistakes over the last 18 months. And it's really imperative that Congress do a A to Z scrub of what the CDC is doing, why it's doing it, and what its mission is. You know, if it didn't spend so much time worried about gun violence as a public health matter, and it got back to its original mission, which was controlling the spread of communicable diseases, perhaps they would have performed more effectively last year. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more of my interview with Senator Cotton. Welcome back to News Items. One of the things that sort of amazes me is, you know, we have this fight over uh, independent commission to look into the events of January 6th, but 
there's no there's no call for an independent commission to look into the U.S. government's response to the coronavirus. Is is that something that you're going to propose, or are others going to call for that? I, I think something like that could be fruitful. I, I I doubt that you'll get much cooperation from the Democrats who are running Congress right now because they politicized this virus from the very beginning as probably their best chance to defeat uh, President Trump in the election last year. Uh, And they basically lionized uh, these public health bureaucrats um, who they viewed um, as the antithesis of Donald Trump, Tony Fauci being a perfect example. I mean, you can drive around Washington, D.C. or the suburbs in Maryland and Virginia and still see yard signs um, that say that they trust Dr. Fauci uh, in this household, in addition to trusting the science, capital T, capital S, despite both Dr. Fauci and the media's frequent disregard of the best scientific knowledge. So I don't think you're gonna, under those conditions you'll get much cooperation from the Democrats in trying to get to the bottom of the origins of this virus and also addressing some of the failures of our public health bureaucracies and controlling the virus early on. But I do think that kind of review is necessary. So all of a sudden, the lab leak theory is no longer a crazy conspiracy, alarmist nonsense propagated by people like Senator Tom Cotton. It's accepted as a viable alternative to the bat to animal to human explanation. What, what happened? <laughs> I went back and looked. I was like, there had to be some moment where the whole thing shifted. Do you know what that was? Because I can't figure it out. You know, I think the single biggest event in the media's reconsideration of the origins of this virus happened on January 20th when Donald Trump left the White House. Again, the coronavirus as a whole was viewed by the Democratic Party as a way to defeat Donald Trump. Right. And anything President Trump said about the coronavirus was almost immediately dismissed to include the possibility that it may have come from these labs. So when Joe Biden took office, the number one reason why the media dismissed this theory no longer held. I also think, though, that there have been new media reports um, and new analysis that just made it too hard for the media to continue to stick its head in the sand. So, for instance, we only learned through media reporting about four or five weeks ago about these staff at the Wuhan labs who have fallen sick with coronavirus-like symptoms in the fall of 2019. And uh, Nick Wade's piece was published, I want to say, in early May. And he's a very well-respected science writer. And when someone like that writes a long, compelling, persuasive piece, uh, a lot of the general interest correspondents or the political correspondents that work in the mainstream media can't help but take notice Um, especially when people like me are still out there pointing out the simple facts and the common sense explanation that if you're looking for the origins of this virus, you should look at the lab that is run by the bat lady researching coronaviruses just a few blocks up the street. And specifically gain-of-function research, right? Yeah, and I think some of the congressional hearings have helped with that as well as Republicans continued to point out that Tony Fauci's agency funded this research in Wuhan. Uh, He played word games to try to dodge accountability for a few weeks. He would say that, no, my agency didn't fund the lab at all. What he meant is that his agency gave our tax dollars to a left-wing nonprofit in America who turned around and gave it 
to that agency. Then he'd play word games with what is or is not gain of function. But I think, it, again, any reasonable objective scientist would say that that lady's research wasn't that gain of function. Uh, that produced some high profile clashes and uh, committee hearings in the Congress. I think that helped drive the reconsideration of this story as well. And then it got to the point where President Biden and his administration simply couldn't dismiss it anymore. So they called for a 90-day review of the intelligence related to the origins. Look, I'll be happy if our intelligence agencies produce new evidence. Color me very skeptical, though, because I've seen what we have so far. And like I said, I think your common sense and what you just know from the published facts is the best case for the lab leak theory. Uh, I think the 90-day review was largely an effort by Joe Biden to kick this can down the road past his European trip and past summer negotiations over his multi-trillion dollar tax and spending bills. I do think the one event that did strike me was the WHO report came out, you know, with the four possibles and the lab leak being the least possible. And the new secretary of state basically took the report and threw it back in the face of WHO and said, do it better. Did you did you talk to Secretary Blinken about that or no? Uh, I did not. I don't think it helped that the WHO produced such a crummy piece of work. The so-called investigation was little more than going to the Wuhan labs and sitting in a conference room with coffee and donuts and being presented a PowerPoint presentation by Chinese communist apparatchiks. And then these European scientists, many of whom aren't even experts in the field, throwing up their hand and saying, nothing to see here. So it once again undermined the WHO's own credibility. Uh, and I suspect that Secretary Blinken wasn't going to put his credibility on the line with the WHO. Right. I, I, the final question I have about this is, do you think we'll ever know? Is there is there a realistic chance that some scientist in China will decide to talk? Um, some assistants, shall we say, in the Wuhan lab will flee the country and tell the whole story. Is there, is there any way to get to the bottom of this or not? I think, John, what you cite, the possibility of, of in effect, a whistleblowing defector mm -hmm. is probably the only way we will ever get direct evidence of how this virus originated, because I believe the Chinese Communist Party has destroyed any other evidence and in many cases has probably disappeared, even killed those persons who might have evidence, which would undercut the possibility of having such a whistleblowing defector. But it's not unheard of. If you recall, a couple of years ago, there was a massive leak of documents related to China's genocidal campaign against religious and ethnic minorities in northwest China, which appeared to come from a party insider in Beijing uh, and exposed just how personally involved Xi Jinping was. Uh, so it's not unheard of that you'd have such a whistleblowing uh, defector or leaker in China. Uh, but I think that's the only way we will ever have conclusive direct proof. But again, all of the circumstantial evidence, and I mean all of it, points towards those labs, not towards that stupid food market. And I think most Americans are entitled to use their common sense when considering the facts and say that China is responsible for this pandemic and that it's time to lower the boom on China as a result. I think we can talk about lowering the boom at another time. I, I, 
The thing that convinced me of the lab leak theory was there's a columnist for the Daily Telegraph in in London uh, named Ambrose Evans Pritchard, and he wrote a piece about the Chinese response to what had happened in Wuhan. And, and the killer was that Xi sent what Ambrose described as Xi's Beria to <laughs> take care of matters uh, in Wuhan. And you don't send Beria to Wuhan because you're doing an investigation. You send Beria to Wuhan to make facts go away, basically. Yeah, I think, uh, and I, I recall that in the very, very early days of this outbreak, the PLA sent its top epidemiologist uh, to Wuhan. And um, I think that's just another bit of circumstantial evidence. Why are you sending a military epidemiologist into a civilian laboratory right after a novel coronavirus emerges unless you want a fixer to go there? Right. What did they call him in Pulp Fiction? Was it Mr. Wolf? Mr. Wolf, right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Well, Senator, thank you very much for your time. This has been great, and uh, hopefully we'll have the opportunity to speak again in the future. Thank you, John, and thanks for news items. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the News Items podcast. Part two of my interview with Senator Cotton will be available this Friday. News Items podcast is based on my newsletter, which you can find at newsitems.substack.com. The podcast is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. I'll be back tomorrow with my co-host Rebecca Darst for a round of news analysis. We'll see you then.